Well, if you would, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. And this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 21. Appreciated Andrew's prayer this morning and I'm so glad he just prayed this passage because that's what it is. It's a, it's a tremendous prayer of the Apostle Paul. It's his second prayer in the book of Ephesians. Some of you may remember in 2015, I did a 10-part sermon series on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. We just looked at the prayers of Paul. They're found in a number of places in the New Testament, and they're so instructive for us because do you ever ask yourself, how do I pray? And I have said this, if you've been in our church for a while, you know I've said this many, many times. I appreciate spontaneous, heartfelt prayer, but there's probably nothing better than just praying scripture. Just praying God's own words unto him, his inspired, authoritative words. And we have that before us this morning. And in verses 14 through 21, Paul praise for the Ephesian believers and for all who will read this letter and really for us for this reason. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is for this reason. Paul begins this section of Ephesians with a very important transitional phrase for this reason. And as good Bible students, as those who take the scriptures very seriously, whenever we see a phrase like that, for this reason, we immediately must ask ourselves, for what reason? For what reason? That's the important question. And the reason is what we learned about last Sunday morning. So this is a direct tie-in to everything that I shared with you in verses 10 through 13 last week. We saw in verse 10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God is the glorious salvation that is found in Christ. A salvation that includes both believing Jews and believing Gentiles who are now one new man in Christ. The manifold wisdom of God is that he has entrusted his church, that he has redeemed, that he has bought with his own blood to be the display of this wisdom before the angels of God 
And we learned last week something that we see a few times in the New Testament, but not very often, that kind of takes us behind the veil of the supernatural, that the angels are watching the church. They do. They watch us all the time. They are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. They are watching or watched as the Messiah came into the world, as the Messiah lived a perfect life, as he then gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the very people who were rebelling against him and sinning against him and provided for their salvation in his death and resurrection. And now through the church he continues to reach communities and to have his gospel reach to the ends of the earth. And the angels are going, wow. And they are glorifying God and they are bringing him more and more glory as they watch through the church the manifold wisdom of God being made known. And then in verse 12 it says, In whom whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That we have been allowed access into the very throne room of God. That we, though in the Old Testament, no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. And if anyone else went in, they would die immediately. But now every believer, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, has direct access into the throne room of the Father. And God glorifies himself by allowing his redeemed people to boldly and confidently come into his presence. And then that key verse, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That eternal purpose, God's eternal purpose in Christ is to bring glory to himself. You want to know the highest purpose of all the purposes of God in the universe? It is to bring glory to himself. It is to glorify his name, his person. And I shared with you that intriguing quote from John MacArthur last week where he said, in the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject matter is the manifold wisdom of God. God is using us as his illustration to the angels of his great salvation in Christ and thus bringing glory to himself. And so in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, for this reason, what I just said, that it might all be to my glory as the church displays the manifold wisdom of God before the heavenly angels. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now when he says he bows his knees, that doesn't mean that this is some kind of prescribed prayer posture. It is a great prayer posture. But it doesn't mean that we can only pray then when we're on our knees. That's not what he's saying here because we know throughout the Bible that we see men and women praying in all kinds of different physical postures. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham stands before the Lord as he intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, it says that David goes into the temple and he sat before the Lord. In Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Gethsemane, it says that Jesus comes and he falls on his face in prayer. However, bowing the knees is a sign in the Bible of great reverence and respect and humility and submission. And we often see people in the Old and New Testaments bowing their knees before God, sometimes lifting their hands to heaven as they bow their knees and they pray unto him. So Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Sometimes I think we just don't realize how incredible it is that we get to call God Father. I don't know what your earthly father is like or was like, but you have a perfect father. It is our Father in heaven. And he can call him Father because of verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can come to him Father is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. If you read uh, a section of scripture like the Gospel of John, he constantly refers to the Father and his relationship with the Father and wanting to bring glory to the Father. And he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth his name. Now we need to take just a, a minute here to talk about verse 15. Verse 15 has been misunderstood over the years. Liberal teachers and theologians have used Ephesians 3.15 to say, see God is the father of everybody and everybody is God's child. The atheist is God's child. The Buddhist is is God's child. The Muslim is God's child. The animist is God's child. We're all God's children and he's our father. But I want you to know this morning that's not what it is saying at all. What Paul is saying here, and this is why when we study the Bible, context is so important. What Paul says here is in the context of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, through Ephesians chapter 3 up to this point. He said, when he says from every family in heaven and on earth, he is talking about specifically the family of God. He is talking about believing Jews and believing Gentiles who make up the household of God, the family of God, from whom we're all named. And not just us, but all the saints who've gone before us, all those saints, Old and New Testament, who are now in heaven. We're all called by the same family name. We are the family of God. Now, think with me. And I'm going to have this on the screen. We looked at it a few months ago. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. And it says this of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus Christ, we both, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, have access in one spirit, notice it's capitalized, meaning the Holy Spirit, to the Father. For through Christ, we, believing Jews and Gentiles, have access in one Holy Spirit to the Father. Our Father. He's now our Father. 
So then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God is a synonym for the family of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family, from whom every believing person, every redeemed person in heaven and on earth is named. But I wonder, or we should wonder together, why does Paul pray this prayer at this particular point? Why all of a sudden as we transition from verses 13 to verse 14 does he give this prayer? Well, the Apostle Paul knows well that the church cannot glorify God in its own strength. So he breaks into an earnest, beautiful prayer for them. I mean, think about it. What an awesome difficult assignment we've been given that we are through the church the manifold wisdom of God the salvation of Jesus Christ is on display before the rulers and authorities in heavenly places before the angels in heaven Paul knows we're not worthy of that task we are sinful men and women so he prays for us that we might do this in the strength of the Lord, that we might do this by the resurrected Christ who lives in us, by the living Christ who resides in us. And so he prays, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Wow. I'm praying for you that he that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you the riches of his glory, refer to all the resources that are possibly available through God for us. The riches of his glory. It takes us back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where we began this whole series, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? What does that mean? Oh, we're going to spend all of eternity understanding that. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's ours. And he says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Now, last week, as we came to the end of the message, I asked this question. I think it's one that we need to think about as Christians. Why is God so passionate about the pursuit of his own glory? And I gave you three reasons why it is so important to glorify God. Well, today I want to ask a different question. And one, I don't want to assume that all of us understand. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the glory of God? We say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is his perfect, infinite attributes that make up who he is as God. He is so beautiful and so glorious. The glory of God is his perfect, infinite 
attributes that make up who he is as God. God is perfect and infinite in his holiness. He is perfect and infinite in his justice. He is perfect and infinite in his righteousness. He is perfect and infinite in his love. He is perfect and infinite in his grace. He is perfect and infinite in his mercy. And we could go on through all the attributes of God. And Paul prays that according to the riches of glory, to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul prays, I want you to know the power of God that resides in you as a believing Jew and a believing Gentile. I want you to know the power of what it means to have the resurrected and living Christ actually living within you. It's what we spent so much of last year talking about, you, talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, he said, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, that you would set aside your human strength and find your strength in the Lord. Oh, may we find that. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's what Paul prays for us, that we would find his great strength and just think about and pray about and live out what it means to have Jesus living within us. Well, our second point this morning is the heart of Paul's prayer. Notice that after Paul prays for the church to be strengthened with power through his spirit, he then asks for God to do five things in his people. So after he prays this, he then asks God to do five things in our lives. First, he prays that you will allow Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this seems a little odd to us as believers, and he's writing to the believers in Ephesus, that he would pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Because doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts? And the answer is absolutely he does. So the word dwell here is an extremely important word. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell means that Christ may be at home in your hearts. That Christ may rule and reign in your hearts. That every area of your life, without exception, may be surrendered to his lordship. He is the Lord of your life, so let him be the Lord of every area of your life. In 1954, a man named Robert Munger wrote a little book that is still widely in print today called My Heart, Christ's Home. I'm guessing many of you have read that at one time or another, where Jesus comes in to the home of your heart and he goes into the living room and he goes into the dining room and he helps you to clean out the closets, the dark places of your life so that he can dwell 
that he can be at home in your heart. Let me ask you this morning, is Christ at home in your life? Or is he a tolerated visitor who's just going to help you escape hell someday? Is Christ at home in every area of your life? Folks, there is no such thing as your spiritual life and your secular life. It's all your spiritual life. We have this false dichotomy that we think, well, I have my work life and my recreation over here and over here I have my church and my devotions. No, it's all his. It's all his. Christian preachers have been preaching about this for hundreds of years in different ways. Let him be Lord of your life. Surrender every area of your life to him. Don't hold back any part of your life from his rule and reign. And that is what Paul is praying for you. That's what we need to pray for ourselves and pray for each other that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Second, he prays that you will be rooted and grounded in love. The end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love as Christ dwells in your heart. Is it home in your heart? Then may you be filled, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. May the love of Christ be the very essence of your being. May it be the very breath that you breathe. Not your love, but his love. If you think about it, human love is so fickle. It's a moving target. It really is. And we use it so carelessly. We may say, oh, I I love my wife. And then in the next minute we say, I love that song. Love that shirt. Love those shoes. You know, it's like, it really has become kind of a meaningless word because we use it so frivolously and so carelessly. Not so with the love of Christ. Oh, he says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in the very love of Jesus. It is his love that caused him to come to this earth for us and live among us. It is the love of Christ that caused him to give sight to the blind and the lame to walk. It was the love of Christ that cast demons out of people to free them from their spiritual bondage and oppression. It was the love of Christ that caused him to weep over Jerusalem. It was the love of Christ that caused him to look out over the multitudes and see them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It was the love of Christ that ultimately drove him to the cross, that he might sacrifice himself for us to pay the penalty for our sins. It is the love of Christ that continues to work through the church today that we might have compassion upon all people, that we would want to share his gospel both here and around the world. Oh, he prays that you would be rooted and grounded in the very love of Christ. Third, he prays that you will comprehend the vastness of Christ's love. Verse 18, may have strength the strength that he just prayed for in verse 16, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of that love. 
Now, I appreciated a number of commentaries said, don't take those words and try to make too much out of them. They simply mean the unlimited vastness of his love. Oh, I pray that you will have the inner strength to understand with all the saints what is the vastness of Christ's love. A love so high that it says there is no person who is too good that they don't need the gospel. A love that said there is no person so bad that they can't be saved by the gospel. A love that spreads to hurting people in the farthest reaches of the world as we watch people suffering and hurting. Families being destroyed all around the world under oppressive governments, under wars, under poverty, under great violence. Oh, let us know the love of Christ. The love of Christ can reach any people group, any person, anywhere. It is so vast in its breadth and length and height and depth. Let us understand this with all the saints. With all the saints can mean a couple of different things. It can mean we stand in the great historical legacy of all the saints. Let us learn with them the love of Christ. It can also mean with all the saints, let's learn this together. Let's practice it among ourselves. Let's help each other in the community and body of Christ to learn the vastness of the love of Christ. And then the fourth thing he prays for is that you will experience a love that surpasses knowledge. And to know, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You know what it means? It means exactly what it says. It means it's beyond human understanding. That we would understand that this love of Christ surpasses anything that we can even think about. It is so great. It's like when God took Abraham out and had him look at all the stars. He said, if you can count the stars, Abraham, so will your descendants be. So will your offspring be. And obviously he couldn't count them. It's like the hymn writer says, count your blessings, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Um, We try, but we can't possibly name all of our blessings. They are so many, and they are so vast. And he says, the love of Christ, that I want you to understand, that I want you to live out, it surpasses knowledge. And fifth, he prays that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? That you, he prays for you, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God relates to the glory of God. I want you to be filled. I want you to be filled with the absolute majesty and greatness of who God is. I want you to be overwhelmed with who God is. I want it to just take your breath away. He is so amazing, so beautiful so infinite and so perfect in all of his attributes. Think about a time when you've been to one of the oceans, if you've been to the ocean. And maybe you've swam out into the ocean, or maybe you've been on, out on a boat in the ocean. Maybe some of you have surfed in the ocean. Or maybe you've just walked along the shore or the beach of the ocean, but there comes that point where you look at the ocean and you just see 
that it goes for miles and miles and miles. And there are two thoughts that you have. One is, how beautiful. How beautiful is this? And the second thought you have is, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to look at out at the ocean as a single human being is overwhelming. Now, multiply that feeling times infinity, and that's what Paul is saying here. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be overwhelmed with how awe-inspiring he is. Oh, I tell you this morning, whatever you're going through, and I know even now we have people in our congregation who are hurting and hurting deeply. And I'm sure there are some of you who are going through things we have no idea what you're going through. I want you to be overwhelmed with the greatness of God. I want you to know that He can meet you in any and every need right where you are at. Do not, do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. He is not only vast and majestic and beautiful, He is there every second of every minute of every day for you. He is. Paul's praying for you. We need to pray this for ourselves. We need to pray this for each other. Well, in verses 20 and 21, it's as if Paul can hardly restrain himself as he bursts into a doxology that has been precious to the Christian church for centuries. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We think of the verse 20. The familiar King James rendering now unto him who can do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, or the New International Version, which says that he is able to do more than we ask or imagine. More than we can even imagine. Oh, now to him who is able, it literally means now to him who is super able. That's literally what it means. That'd be a literal translation there. Now to him who is super able, nothing's too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, God can do more than you could even ask. Isn't that great to know? He can do more than you can even think of. I could think of this for the, every minute of the rest of my life and I not, could not possibly think of all that God is capable of doing. And that power lives in you according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations and forever and ever. Amen. There's one phrase there that I really want you to hone in on that really brings last week and this week together. To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. My prayer for us, let us pray 
for each other, that we would be overwhelmed with the greatness of God. That we would believe, that we would believe as a church body that God can do the unbelievable. Let us have that childlike, innocent faith that believes him to do the unbelievable. And as we watch him, let us bring him more and more and more glory and more and more and more glory. Let us glorify him in the church as we worship him, as we praise him, as we live for him. May the glory of God saturate this church. May the glory of God saturate your minds. May it saturate your words. May it saturate your relationships. May it saturate everything you do in the workplace, in the home, wherever you may go and whatever you may do. To him. To him be glory in the church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help First Baptist Church of St. John's to glorify you. May this church display the manifold wisdom of God to the angels in heaven. May this church be obsessed with wanting to bring glory to God. May we be overwhelmed with your greatness. And may we pray over and over again now to him who is able, able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.